My grandma has always said, it's wonderful that you have so many friends, and I agree with her. During the pandemic, I realized how much I miss seeing the people who make my life so bright and interesting, and I wanted to find a way to introduce all of these stars to the world. And so I created this podcast. You, dear listener, will get a chance to be introduced to those who make my world hum with possibility. We will talk about serious things, silly things, sad things, glorious things, and things that make us feel alive. So settle in. It's just you and me. Hello, everyone. We're back. I'm back with a dear friend, Katie. Katie, who are you? How do we know each other? (laughs) Who am I? That's like a big question. Um, (laughs) So my name is Katie. I live in the Raleigh, North Carolina area. I know Julie because for a certain amount of time, we both worked in the same building um, at Duke University. Um, I work for an organization that sort of left Duke a few years ago. And who am I? Um, Yeah, I work for a member association um, in international education. I'm a new mother with a almost four month old, Um, an older new mother, I'm like 37. Um, Geriatric. Technically I am geriatric. That's what they call it. crazy. I mean, it's like, I say that as a joke because I think it's insane, but also like, I know you're considered geriatric. Yeah, yeah. all my paperwork was like geriatric mother. And I'm just like, thanks, I appreciate it. I feel very geriatric. Um, let's see, um, lifelong learner and I love travel and I'm very sad that I'm not able to do that with COVID right now. Um, and culture junkie as in like different cultures not pop culture but like I love like learning about different cultures and, and that's that's really, really fascinating um yeah. exciting to me so okay you talk about travel and today we're going to talk about a place that you traveled to and you actually lived in for quite a long time so tell me about Morocco how'd you get there what'd you do there what was it like you know everything I want to yeah. know it all no I feel like I could talk about Morocco for hours um okay. I went with Peace Corps back in about 2007. Um, I was a health education, it was called like a rural extension public health volunteer, um, which means that we went over and were sort of attached to a SPITAD or like a clinic uh, in a rural area. And- Can you first just tell me why you decided to do the Peace Corps? Because I think that that's a pretty big decision to make. Yeah. So, what, so you know, what was your background and like, why did you think like, this is the right thing for me to do? So I heard about Peace Corps when I was in like 10th grade, I think. There was a teacher at my school who had been in Samoa and he did a big presentation and showed like slides and stuff from his time in the 70s in Samoa. And it just seemed really awesome. Mm. So I really wanted to. And then I went to college and I sort of learned a little bit more about like critical thinking and um, like neocolonialism and all of that and was thinking, okay, is this actually okay? I don't know how I feel about Peace Corps anymore. Sure. Um, the plan had been to go straight from college into Peace Corps, but I didn't do that because I was sort of skeptical. So I worked for a um, clinic for a couple of years doing like nonprofit health stuff, bilingual patient education type things mm-hmm. um, in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more I talked to people who had done Peace Corps, the more I learned about their theory of development, the more comfortable I became that it was not just some like, at the time I was, I think 22 or 23, yeah. you know, American, going 
thinking that they had all the answers to all the problems and mm -hmm. sort of arrogantly doing that. It was more of like the idea of a, of a cheerleader saying, okay, like we're, you're, your job is to integrate into the, um, into the community, get to know the community, get to know their needs and work with them to sort of meet those needs rather than go in and just jump in and do things. So the more I learned about it, the more I talked to Return to Peace Corps volunteers, I said, okay, well, this is something I'm comfortable with. This is something I believe in. Yeah. So let's do it. Um, I thought, Tommy, do you pick a country? How, like, you know, where, how did you get to Morocco as being <laughs> the place that you, that you decided to go to? Yeah. It's funny because like at the time you couldn't up until maybe five or six years ago, nobody was able to pick at all. So you were just, oh, wow. Okay. They changed the model five years ago. So now people actually apply to specific positions. Mm -hmm. So when I went in for my interview, I had my heart set on like a Spanish speaking country because I really wanted to get fluent in Spanish. Mm -hmm. I had taken it for a long time and I had never immersed myself in it. So that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. So I sat there and she said, yeah, yeah, you're qualified for these. She's like, but I think actually I found something to sort of put into the system for you. It's not a final placement, but you're, you go through the system as if you have this placement um, in the Northeast and Middle Africa doing public health. And I could just see you out there doing this and it sounds really cool. And I got excited. I said, okay, let's, let's do that. Yeah. I'm not allowed to tell you what country it is, but when I looked, there was only one country in that whole region that had a health program and it was Morocco. So I knew immediately that it was Morocco. Okay. Months like researching it, reading blog, blogs from people who had been there as Peace Corps volunteers, um, really excited. And then I got a phone call three months later saying, okay, great, we are um, inviting you to do youth development in South America. Oh. And I said, oh, okay, great. Um, that's awesome. Just out of curiosity, is my initial nomination still available? Like, is there a way I could still do that? And they said, okay. Oh. You can do, and they give me like five options. They were like youth development in Morocco, health in Morocco, or uh, yeah, um, youth development in Central America, youth development in South America, or public health in South America. Which do you want? Okay. And I said, okay, great. Can I have some time? They're like, no, no, no. Which do you want? Oh, God. <laughs> it's oh. It feels like sometimes in life there are those moments where you're like, okay this moment is going to define the rest of my life. And that was one where I was and like- And it has in more ways than you ever thought it would have absolutely, been. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I was like, well, you know, I guess the known is easier than the unknown. So yeah. since I spent a couple months learning about Morocco and, and reading about that, it was like, okay, I, I got excited about this, let's do it. So uh, okay. yeah, so I ended up, that was in December and then I was wow. in Morocco in February. So that was, that was fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So you, so 2008 or 2007? 2007, February, 2007. Okay. Um, so tell me about it. So how, so, you know, you're, you're there. Oh my gosh. So, so I, again, I'm a culture nerd, right? Yeah. If I could do anything with my life selfishly, I would love nothing more than to do, have like a sabbatical every summer and do Peace Corps training in a different country every summer, mm -hmm. because it is the most intense and amazing cultural immersion I've ever experienced in my life. Like okay. um, we did three, three months of training. Um, I ended up learning Tamazight, which is not Arabic, obviously. It's yeah. like an indigenous language. Um, so it's in three months, African language. In three months, I could at least introduce myself and have some basic conversations. And then, wow. and then it was like immersion that you learned the rest of it, which, yeah, okay. which worked. I mean, by the end of my two years, I was able to stand up and do like hour and a half long presentations in it, but I've lost it all since then. Oh my gosh. I haven't had like 
the opportunity to really practice it. Right. Okay. Um, so we would be, there were 36 of us or 35 of us that were health volunteers. We were in a hotel in a place called Azilal, kind of in the middle of nowhere, mountain town. Um, and so we would go and have training in this like hotel that we rented out for a couple days or a week or a week and a half on like the public health side of things, on Peace Corps policy and all of that. And then we would take these smaller trips out to what we call our community-based training sites. Mm -hmm. So for us, this was a tiny village. There were five of us in my village. And that was just pure language immersion class from 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. And then we were staying in families. Um, super, super small groups, so like five, five of us to one instructor. Um, and I think it was, we were in that for about a month total, but again, broken up in two or three days at a time and a week and, you know, just sort of scattered throughout that three month period. Um, we how much of this was like a, was like a push for you? Like how much of this were you like, yeah, no problem. And like, how much of it was like, what did I just do? I love it. I did. Okay. So you were I, in it. I am like the biggest, again, if I could choose anything that I could do selfishly, I would do this in like 18 different countries wow. once a year for three was months. That surprising? Was that surprising to yourself? No, I've always oh, Okay. Like when I was a kid, my like treasures, like as a, as a small kid, I had like a drawer and it was like my foreign things. And so I would take like maps that were maps of Disney World in like Japanese and I would take it home with me and I would put it in my drawer and I would look at my little like foreign things. Like I, like when I say I'm a culture nerd, like I love that. Like I have spent a lot of quarantine watching random documentaries on super, you know, random cultural things. Um, yeah. Okay, I'll stop interrupting you. Keep talking because I'm just like intrigued by this. So. <laughs> so, so, so training was awesome. Um, and then I went to a small, I, I was given my, my site, my, um, the place that I was going to live for the next two years. Yeah. Um, it was called Eitel Farsi and okay. outside of Tenerer. Which we'll is, put a map, we'll put a, a link to a map on the pod. Right. So between, what is that in Eroshiria in the south? Okay. Um, so very rural, fairly conservative. I was the only woman that didn't wear a headscarf in town except for like one teacher who was from Marrakesh, mm -hmm. who actually was awesome and walked around in like stiletto boots and on um, like the mud paths in the town. It was she was she and I were good friends. Yeah. Um but it, yeah, I mean it was it was hard. It was the hardest, other than maybe having a kid, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Um but also just really awesome. Um, the people were incredible. Um, so I did two months in a homestay when you first get there to really immerse yourself. Um, you're attached, attached, you're partnered with like a clinic. So my counterpart was the local nurse. Um, and the first three to six months, they really say your job is to learn the community and for your language to get better. So okay. we did like a community assessment I would go and sit in, in the clinic and just sort of like practice tamazight and, and maybe do some quick like lessons or something with women just to get a sense and like go in with them and sort of get a sense of what people were coming for and what the issues were. Um, Is it, was it specifically a women's clinic or was it a clinic for everyone that lived there? It was a clinic for everyone, but for some reason it was mostly women who went. I think a lot of the men, so actually, well, this was kind of frustrating. I think a lot of men would come in and they wouldn't sit in the waiting room. They'd just be seen immediately, whereas the women would sit oh, and wait. Okay. Um, 
which I forgot about until you asked. (laughs) But then I think a lot of men would also maybe go to like into town, whereas women might just go to the one that was actually in the, in Eitelfarsi itself. Eitelfarsi, when I first got there, it was off of a dirt road, but they paved it like my third or fourth month that I was living there, which was nice because it made it a lot quicker to get to town. Um, We had electricity, we had running water that sometimes was treated and sometimes wasn't, and sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. Uh, there was no internet at the time, but there is now. Um, there was a elementary school, but no middle school or high school. So people had to go to like a couple towns over and pretty much either stay with family or stay in like a boarding room or boarding house. So a lot of kids were still not getting like a full education. Um, what was the population of, of where you were? About 2000. Okay. So pretty small. I mean, pretty small. There were so hypothetically, I mean, you're also white. So like, <laughs> hypothetically, like everyone knew you. Oh yeah. And you probably knew the majority of everybody. So I think at one point, I think there were about 600 households, 500 okay. households, something like oh, that. And I think that by the time I left, I had been inside about 250. Yeah. Wow. Um, but did I know them all? No, I knew my neighbors. I had like some good friends. Yeah. But that's one thing that was really beautiful to me about Moroccan hospitality was that, you know, there's, um, I guess, this sense, and, and Moroccans really tend to, as a pattern, take it seriously, um, that you should, as almost like an act of worship, um, welcome foreigners. Like, you should welcome people into your home. Mm-hmm. And so I literally couldn't leave my house without someone sometimes grabbing my hand and pulling me into their house saying, no, you haven't been to my house yet. You have to come over and drink tea and eat bread or eat couscous or have lunch with us and stay for three hours and take a nap after the meal because we all take a nap after the meal. So here, lay down on, on this little mat on the floor here and take a nap with us and then we'll have tea afterwards and then you can be on your way. <laughs> I mean, I think it probably would be overwhelming if you needed to get somewhere, but what a beautiful yeah, it was awesome. part of the community. I mean, it was incredible. Um, you know, it was, it was very frustrating. There were some really frustrating parts about being there. Um, yeah. Also some really amazing parts. Um, I really had to get over the idea of being an American who feels like my self-worth is based on what I do instead of who I am. Mm. Um, because I, if I took Peace Corps theory development seriously, which I did, yeah. then I couldn't just go in and do things. Yeah. And I was the first volunteer in that state, the first foreigner to like ever live there. And like people didn't know what to do with me. And there were some people that really didn't trust me because I was a foreigner. They would still have me over to their house, but they were like, yeah, we, we like you as a person, but we don't know what you're doing here. And we don't want you to do health lessons for, you know, at the community center or something. Like they'd say, okay, yes, 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 inshallah, inshallah. And then there was always an excuse and then sort of like this indirect communication style, it was made very clear that like, no, we don't want you doing that. So I had had a couple of incidences where like one thing that we could do is apply for grants to build bathrooms. And uh, there was a school across the way in a neighboring little village that was still part of the the community um, that didn't have bathrooms in the school. So girls who sometimes even just because they didn't want to go to the bathroom, but also especially if they were on their periods, um, they were menstruating, they didn't go to school because there was nowhere for them to take care of that. Yeah. So, look, we actually can apply for grant money to get this built. We need a 25% in-kind donation. But one of the things that we also need is to know who's going to be in charge of taking care of this. Who's going to do the, the maintenance and upkeep? We need a plan. Yeah. 
and they refused to have a plan. I said, if you want to build us the bathrooms, you can build us the bathrooms. We'll, we'll deal with it. We'll take care of it. But they wouldn't do that. So we had everything ready to go. We had the in-kind donation ready to go, but mm -hmm. nobody would take ownership of it. So we couldn't do it. Oh. Um, and it was the exact same thing with like an incinerator for medical waste because um, often, and this is a very, this is very rural Morocco. For, for those of you who are listening, um, don't, this is not like all over Morocco. This is definitely right. like, so just your specific instance of the community of, and life is incredibly different in different parts of the country. Right. Um, so it's, it's similar with the United States, right? Yeah. I mean, you think for <laughs> us, you think about going hundred, 200 miles from here and you get to Appalachia, like it's a totally different world. Yeah. But if this is like your first exposure to Morocco, please don't. Right. Of course. Of course. Of, this is what all of Morocco. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that clarification. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, the uh, syringes, for example, um, weren't disposed of in a way, they were just sort of thrown in a pit outside. And sometimes kids would go take like huge syringes yeah. and use them as sport guns or use them to apply henna or something. Mm -hmm. So another thing that we could do was write a grant to get funding to build a medical waste incinerator. But for that, we again needed someone to commit to buying what ended up being something like $10 a year worth of gas to to be able to do this so that it was sustainable and nobody would take that on huh. um so we didn't do it yeah um and so i got to a point probably about a year in where i was really frustrated i remember like walking through the fields talking to like one of the program staff and peace corps like crying in the middle of the like the fields like mm -hmm. they don't want me here nobody wants me i have friends but i can't get anything done like please send me somewhere else and they're like no we're not sending you somewhere else uh -huh. um and so I started looking outside of my like immediate community um, and ended up finding some really cool organizations like in the nearby town, Tin to work with. Okay. Um, so once I found partners that were really willing to work with me, even though I had to go a little bit farther for them, mm -hmm. things turned around a lot. Um, and mm -hmm. I, you know, we ended up doing a really cool World AIDS Day tent, essentially, at the weekly market where people came from, you know, 50 or 60 miles away to, to come to this one large market and sort of the central hub town for that region. Um, and so we ended up doing some lay health worker training for some girls who were part of an association there. Hmm. And so these like teenage girls were awesome because they would stand in this tent on World AIDS Day with like brochures and stuff. And there was this female nurse who had a big megaphone who was talking about like, come learn about AIDS prevention. And they were talking hmm. about condoms and they were talking about like all of these things to like the men, the women, everybody who was there. Um, and, and it was just really cool to see. And I think we ended up talking to like a thousand people or something like that on, in one day between all of us together, um, which I was really excited about and happy about. Um, and I mentioned sort of offhandedly to the president of the association that we worked with to do this, like, oh, there's another festival coming up, but I'm not gonna be in town or else, you know, it'd be really cool to do this again at that festival. Um, and then I found out afterwards, they didn't even tell me, but they repeated it again at that festival without me. They didn't even tell me. And I was like, okay, this is perfect. That's this great. Is, that's, what, that's what the goal is, right? What it's about. It's about the sustainability. Okay. It's about people having ownership. It's about not, again, it's not that I did this. It's that I found people who were willing to work with me and we were able to put our heads together and do something that might not have been done. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of like, you know, I feel like a good Peace Corps volunteer in a lot of ways is like a professional cheerleader. And that's yeah. kind of like our role. Yeah. Um, 
And so there were other little things that we did too, like uh, we did a training of trainers for nurses and doctors who were working in rural areas because there were some sort of cultural differences between mm -hmm. cities that they were from, the rural areas that they were assigned to. So we tried to sort of um, bring in some trainers that could speak to that. Um, I did a lot of health lessons at other organizations sort of within 20 or 30 miles of where I was living. Um, and I had like a little Girl Scout troop type thing in my town where I had like 10 girls, 10 or 15 girls that would come over like every day. Uh -huh. And uh, they were amazing. They're incredible. Where did you live? Because I know you mentioned that you had done a homestay for a couple of months, but then but then when the rest of your time, where did you stay? Yeah, so I lived, um, so I did a homestay for the first two months. And then there were only a couple options in town of places to rent. So I, um, to everybody's surprise in town, they thought I was going to rent this like, cement building like the cement almost like an apartment in somebody else's house that was a little bit nicer but I was like I need my privacy it's really hot in the summer it's really cold in the winter and and like the houses made out of adobe are like much better for that than the houses made out of cement so I had this little cement house with a couple goats in the front yard and a quince tree and a pomegranate tree and something else a fig tree and I was like kind of in like the poor section of town when everybody was like, why would you do that? He was like, why do you live over there? I don't understand. Why don't you live in this person's apartment? And I'm like, it's a nice place to live. Why wouldn't I? Yeah. Um, and so people thought, people already thought that I was kind of the, the weird foreigner, but I was even more weird for choosing to live somewhere that was a little bit less um, nice than some of the other options that I had. But I liked the privacy and that's where most of the girls in my little Girl Scout troop live was in that area and it was just um it was fun it was, it was it was cool and you get so I know Peace Corps is volunteer but do you get a stipend like how do you how do you survive so we got paid at the, they, they say that they give you enough money to live at the level of like a, a teacher or a nurse at your town so they paid my okay. rent and then at the time I got about two hundred dollars a month okay um that's and, a, um sufficient I can't say a word, obviously. It's sufficient, sufficient if you don't travel. If you want to travel a lot, it's not sufficient. But okay. if you're just going to like stay close to your town, travel when you need to for work, like it's fine. Yeah. Um, and so then, so just because we don't have as much time as I would like to talk to you about this, your Peace Corps time ends. Yeah. Then what happens? Yeah, actually, I thought about extending because I was like, you know, it took me like a year to really find these partnerships that worked well. Um, I feel like yeah. I could do a lot more. I feel like my language is at a point where I can do more. So I thought really seriously about extending. But again, I realized it was probably more about ego than anything else. And so I decided not to. Okay. Um, but I did apply for a job in international education. So working for an organization called Morocco Exchange. Mm -hmm. And I got that. So I ended up working another two years and some change in the capital city, Rabat, um, doing almost like micro study abroad programs. So during the year, we would take students that were US students studying in Spain on these like five, six day programs in Morocco. And they would include homestays, they would include interaction with students, they would include rural visits. Um, it was this very intense, culturally immersive, very intentionally programmed excursion, I guess. Um, 
And um, then they would go back to finish the rest of their semester in Spain. Mm -hmm. And then in the summer, we would work with uh, faculty for faculty-led programs from different universities in the U.S. So they would come for like three weeks, four weeks, two weeks for longer programs that we sort of created to meet the course need of the course that they were on that they came over to Morocco on. So um, I started out as a program leader. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. ahead. No, I was going to say I started as a program leader. So my first year, I was just sort of like leading the excursions. And then... My, my second year, I was the project manager. So I created some new programs um, down in Marrakesh and, and did some other sort of administrative stuff as well as leading some programs and, and did a lot with the faculty led programs, which was super cool because they'd be like, here's a wish list of what we want, go make it happen. And like my work day would be like going and having coffee with three or four different people to try to like make connections to get into like a hospital for a public health program or something. Like it was just, it was, it was just cool. And it was such a privilege because at the end of these programs, we would have like a, we called it like an integration session, but it was really just like a time for reflection. And people would respond to prompts like, you know, what, what has your change, what, what has anything changed in your thinking? Mm. Um, and the goal in such a short amount of time was not to make experts out of, out of people. Um, but it was really just to plant a seed. And it was just, I mean, I would get goosebumps sometimes because people would say, oh, you know, I, I never thought that I was prejudiced, but if I saw a woman wearing a headscarf in the airport, I'd hope that she wasn't on my plane. Mm-hmm. And now I've lived with, lived with, they would use the word lived, even yeah. though it was five days, because um, it was that intense. Yeah. You know, but now I've lived with people and I, I realize how, um, how ignorant that is you know like just those little those little seeds those little thoughts of, of cognitive dissonance and and the ability to start thinking like okay I'm, I'm breaking down these barriers I'm breaking down these stereotypes I'm I'm learning about the complexities of of Islam and how uh, Muslim culture is so different and there's so many different cultures within that and how even Morocco which is one country um is so different from place to place and from person to person that you see people wearing you know um, not to focus exclusively on women's dress because that's a huge pet peeve of mine. Um, but you know, you see women walking around in miniskirts and you see women wearing like a full covering with only their eyes showing, you know, walking down the street, the same street. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all, well, I guess neither one of those are hundred percent acceptable to all of society, but, um, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's diversity. It's, it's, um, you know, it's this thriving, warm, beautiful place full of very hospitable people who were just willing to open their arms and share um and it was it was just a real gift to be there for for a while i really um appreciated it and miss it every day did you did you like one of the situations better than the other did you like peace corps versus working in the international education or did you like them equally because they were just different they were so different. I mean, I feel like the difference, even though it's the same country, between life in Rabat and life in Edelfersi is greater than the difference between probably like two European countries. You know, like it's, 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 it was two totally different worlds. There were different languages, um, you know, Tamazian versus Arabic or French. Um, yeah, how did you, do, how did you like shift into working in Rabat? Because you had a, a strong hold on the dialect, but now you were all of a sudden supposed to either speak Arabic or French, correct? 
So I had studied French before. So between French and my one of my friends said it was a sky I spoke skyscraper Arabic because it sounded like I took my Arabic and I went to the top of the skyscraper and I dropped it and there were shards of the language on the ground and that's what I used to communicate with in Arabic. Um, it was very, very good at super basic conversations about food, about yeah. transportation, about shopping. Um, and my accent was pretty decent because of, of living in, in those areas. So people would assume that I spoke it fluently and then they'd realize like, wait a second, how do you not understand what I'm saying? Because I speak very, very limited, very, very well. Yeah. Um, but between that and English, there's a lot of English speakers, particularly in like the education realm and in public health and that sort of thing. Um, but between English, French, Tamazight, a lot of shopkeepers would speak Tamazight, a lot of taxi drivers would speak Tamazight, and then when they heard me speak it, they would get very excited, and I would make quick friends with them because nobody speaks it. Because here I am, not speaking the language of the country, but speaking their regional, you know, indigenous language. So then, I mean, you make fast friends that way. Yeah. Uh, People are probably shocked that like oh. you would walk into a store and maybe they were speaking to someone else and then all of a sudden you just chimed in. Yeah. You probably were in some ways tickled that, you know. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I mean, either that or they're like, oh, Peace Corps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they okay, know. that's true, oh, that's true. Peace Corps, these people, these, these you know, 20 something usually. Right. Um, not all of us were in our 20s, though. We had an 85-year-old, I think, serve like the year after. That's what I love about Peace Corps is that it's, I mean, although I think just realistically for life, it makes a lot of sense for people who are younger to go just because you're not as, you know, kind of solid in like the structure of your life and et cetera. But like, you know, I could do it. I mean, I'm almost 41 and like I could decide that I want to go do Peace Corps. I, 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 there's something about that that I really appreciate. Yeah. It's, I mean, it was really cool and I really appreciated. We had, I think in my particular group, most of us were in our twenties and we had someone who was like in her early thirties and then someone in her early fifties. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it was, it was great. No, I mean, I definitely felt like life was more comfortable in Rabat. Life was more sustainable for me in Rabat. Um, I had friends that had more similar values to me, I think, mm -hmm. um, because I think the only person that really had similar a similar worldview to me was that teacher friend um, sure. when I was in Eitel which was fine and it was it was good and it was illustrative and you know it definitely like built bridges and um, we understood each other a lot better and and sort of did all of the things that we're supposed to do with that mm -hmm. um, which mm -hmm. was great but sometimes it's nice to be able to to relax and fully be yourself in a way that I, I couldn't always be um, yeah. and there are parts of my identity that I hid um, that it just it just was easier to hide sure. um but um well still being honest still being true to myself but you know and, and negotiating that was exhausting um, yeah. and we all i think most peace corps volunteers have very um a lot of us have very strong personalities not not all of us but a lot of us do and so there was some very heated discussion about how much of that you do and you know some who you know some who really assimilated more than even integrated into their culture and then some who were like no I'm unapologetically exactly who I am and I'm going to walk around wearing whatever I want to wear and I'm going to say whatever I want to say and be you know be very upfront all the time about that and I kind of was in the middle um I kind of made some concessions uh but said that there are certain things that I wasn't really willing to do um and I was comfortable I mean I, I had to become comfortable with that I sort of had to find where I was comfortable in that range but yeah. um I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say Rabat. 
what I loved about living in Rabat was that I could day to day choose how much of my life I wanted to live as a Westerner and how much of it I wanted to live sort of more, more Moroccan-ish. Like mm-hmm. I could choose whether I was going to take a taxi to the grocery store and like buy my stuff at a supermarket yeah. or whether I was going to go to the old Medina and like haggle over freshly baked bread and pick out the part of the animal that I wanted the butcher to cut down and make conversation with them about, you know, that their family or whatever, you know? Um, I could go and watch a French movie and eat French food and drink coffee and go talk to my friends on the computer because I just needed a day where I could be American or feel more American or I could you know go spend the day with friends that are Moroccan that you know with their families and you know eat that food I mean it was just it was it was sustainable it was a sustainable lifestyle because I had the best of both worlds yeah and I really loved that I really appreciated that yeah and so I alluded to this at the beginning of the uh, of our conversation, but you know, Morocco has has kind of had a pretty serious hold on your heart, um, not only when you were living there, but also um, yeah. in your current life. So talk a little bit about your love story. Yeah. So about three and a half years into living in Morocco, you know, for those three and a half years, I was you know I came to Morocco single. And I thought there's no way that I would ever have a love story in Morocco with a Moroccan because our cultures are just so different and right. it just would be too much to, to ask for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that remained true for three and a half years. Um, then but. when I Morocco exchange, I had some friends that started dating and, and got married to Moroccans. And so I sort of saw some of these Moroccan American couples and that they were making it work. And mm-hmm. so one day, one of my roommates, I was with, I was living with three other Americans at that time in the Udea, which if you ever want to see a gorgeous place, Google the Udea. It mm-hmm. actually used to be a pirate fort and the capital of a pirate kingdom. And it's this like walled city where the beach meets, where the ocean meets the Burgreg River. Oh. And it's the most fantastic place. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And I still can't believe that I lived there for a year. And then I moved to a different apartment. It was just incredible. Anyway, so there were three, four of us American women living in this house in the Udea. And um, one of these, the, my roommates had a crush on this colleague of ours who was Moroccan. So we invited him over for dinner for taco night. And he said, oh, I'd love to come, but um, my friend's in town. And he, uh, I already told him that we'd hang out. Can he come? And we said, yeah, sure, no problem. So he came late. He was an hour late. And I was annoyed because I was like trying to keep the food warm without it drying out and failing miserably. <laughs> So he came and he was, you know, he had little glasses on. He was, uh, he kind of looked a little bit like, I don't know, intel- like nerdy to me a little bit. It was kind of cute. And he kind of just sat there and listened most of the time. But when he talked, it was witty. And I was like, how can you be witty in English? Like, this is really impressive. Yeah. But I was like, whatever. Like, I didn't really pay much attention. Um, they were, the guys were smoking hookah upstairs on the roof. Mm-hmm. And I was a little tipsy, which is funny because I don't even really drink now. Um, uh-huh. But I was just talking to him. There was just the two of us on the roof for some reason. And I accidentally knocked the hookah over and it almost burned his pants. Oh, gosh. So literally oh, sparks God. flew. Like sparks like genuinely flew that night. <laughs> because I almost burned the crap out of his legs. So, <laughs> and then I was dancing at this random club, which I am not a clubber and I am not a dancer. 
Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I was laughing. So you almost burned his leg and then you went to the club or this was just a different time? Well, so no. So this was like before we went to the club, we were up on the roof of our- Okay. Okay. And then we went to this club and he was a little flirty and I was a little tipsy. And so I said some very silly things and (laughs) did some very silly things. Nothing too R-rated, but still silly for me. (laughs) And um, it was the day before- Valentine's Day, 2010. Okay. And we said, okay, it'd be weird to like see each other on Valentine's Day as a first date because that would be kind of strange, but let's like meet the next day. Okay. So we met the day after Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. And we went for coffee at like three and ended up just walking around the town all day, having dinner, getting coffee again, walking around town. 1030 at night, we are on this we're in the Udeas we're sort of looking at this area where you can oversee the beach it's kind of like a lover's lane mm-hmm. um as much as it can be in in Morocco so we're kind of flirty a little bit um and are maybe a little bit inappropriate based on Moroccan culture sure so all of a sudden this guy walks up to us and he's like Yasir who's my now husband you know spoiler alert my now husband spoiler. is um <laughs> <laughs> it's like go 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 so we start walking and this guy is it ends up it's a um uh ununiformed police officer like an undercover police officer okay and because we might have been kissing um apparently that's illegal and i knew that but we did it anyway uh-huh. and so he was going to take us out of the office and arrest us and oh. he's here ended up actually living kind of close to him so he let us off with a warning um but that was like our first date was oh my gosh. like I almost got arrested for PDA and I thought I was gonna like be deported for PDA um so that was interesting yeah. but uh yeah so so we 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 hung out for a while in Morocco and um somehow made things work and ended up applying for the fiance visa um it was funny because we said that we weren't going to get engaged until the next summer so we would be together like a year and a half before we got engaged okay however that October when we had only been together like six or eight months um both of us ended up looking at rings like separately and so we were like well maybe we should just get engaged so we we did I met his family and then we got engaged um and then, what did they, what did they think were they a little nervous about you know this woman so he had <laughs> never brought a woman home before um I remember like the first few minutes that I met his mom I uh, mm-hmm. also met his niece who was like one and a half or two at the time. And I said something like in baby talk, sort of mm-hmm. Arabic. And uh, she was like, oh my goodness, you sound like this girl from Terror Dan. Like, oh my God, you sound like a hick when you're talking, essentially. Like you've got like this hick accent. And I'm like, thanks, I guess. But I guess I passed the test because yeah. I spent laid, um, uh, aid, aid, the big the big Eid is what they say like in Morocco. Aid. Yeah, right. Um, and so, uh, you know, we slaughtered, you know, I was there when they slaughtered the sheep on the, the roof of the house and stuff like that. And, you know, my, my Arabic is still very skyscraper Arabic. Um, but for some reason, my mother-in-law and I can communicate really well. And I understand a lot of what she says and she understands a lot of what I say. So she's yeah. actually come over to visit us a couple times now and we get along well. Maybe the not really having a mutual language helps that rather than hinders it. I'm not sure, but, um, yeah. but yeah, they're great. And yeah. you agreed you were going to, like, did you know, regardless of Yasir, that you would be going back to the States at some point? 
Yeah, I knew at some point, and I, I had planned on maybe staying one more year, but I just was having some differences of opinions uh, about how some of the things were going at the current job that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I figured it was time to go home. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have a master's degree. I knew that it's, at some point I needed one. Um, and it just wasn't really financially feasible to stay longer term in Morocco. Like I was making enough to live off of, but not enough for like savings or to go home fairly regularly and that sort of thing. So it was, it, there were a couple of push and pull factors. So yeah, so he did the, the fiance visa. And it's funny because about a year after he was here, the whole 90 day fiance TV show on TLC came out. And so now everybody yeah, knows- you're basically my dream. You guys yeah, are my dream. We did it. I mean, that was, that was so what great. we did. That was our, that was our experience. Um, but you know, we married at a courthouse like a month and a half after he came here and yeah. he, uh, stepped foot in the U S and moved straight into my parents' basement for a couple months. So we, we really could have been on that show in some ways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah so it's been we've been together almost 11 years wow. married nine-ish yeah um and we have a four month old four yeah. months and a couple days so yeah so life is very interesting um who would have so, thought and remember and just think you could have gone to south america i know that's like the wild thing is that i think about that moment quite often. I was like sitting in this office. I was, I hadn't told my job that I had like applied yet mm-hmm. to Peace Corps. And so they called me and I could tell that it was, I think they had emailed saying, Hey, we may call you in this afternoon or whatever. So I knew it was coming, but I like had to like creep into like a closet almost. And was like, on the phone with that, my job, um, trying to like make this decision. And it was just like, it was just a moment. Cause I was like, well, this is, this is intense. This is, yeah. Gosh, like I gotta, you know, have to make this decision right now. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you made that decision because I, I do think that we met because of that decision, right? And oh yeah, there's no way. I, I mean, I don't think that. I mean, the, even the job that I have now, I, it was very, yeah. I found out about it from a friend who I met through Morocco Exchange. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have applied for the job if she hadn't pushed me to apply for it. Right. And who knows when I would have, if I would have, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it, who knows my life could have taken a complete trajectory from that. From a lot of people are really find, find that notion to be very sad, but I actually think it's quite fascinating just to think about. And I, and I think about it very relationally too, right? Like if I didn't know this person then I wouldn't have known this person and this wouldn't have happened. And, and I just, I just think it's fascinating, right? Yeah. So I thank you for for your for sharing a bit of Morocco with us. Um, and now is your time to ask me one question that you'd like for my moment of vulnerability. Anything that you'd like. First of all, I don't think I gave Morocco justice at all. I very much talked about myself, and I would encourage anybody listening to go to Morocco to talk to Moroccans to meet Moroccans because I have not given. I have not done even a little bit of justice. That is, for anyone listening, that is the most Katie statement that (laughs) is humanly possible. That's awesome. I love that. Um, No, so my question for you, Julie, (laughs) Mm -hmm. is, and if you've already been asked this, tell me and I'll come up with something else. Um, I mean, every day I'll have a different answer, so. Okay, that's true. So who has made if not the biggest impact, like a big impact on you and your trajectory? 
Wow. Yeah, I don't know. So it's it's interesting because you know, like one person immediately came to mind, and I don't know if. And then I was like, and then I like, you know, started going through these like, oh, well, is that really the person? So, but I'm just going to say it because I think that I think there's truth to it. So um, when I was a youth minister, uh, I was a youth minister from the age of 22 to th 31 or something like that. I don't know, like nine years. So if that's nine years, then that's, that works out correctly. Um, and I was, I worked with uh, two pastors who were married and I adore both of them. Um, but I would say that Laura, who was the, the, the um, co-senior minister with her husband, um, was her, the relationship that I have, that I have with her was one of the most formative. And I think it's because she was so willing to be so open to people and to really be authentic in who she was and how she welcomed others in and how she created just these spaces of just warmth and comfort. And I don't even know that if I, if, if I come anywhere close to who she is and what she does, but I've, I've always felt seen by her and heard by her and you know, I think I could go to her with literally any question and she would just be like, oh, okay, like, let's either figure this out or I support you. And it's, it's just a relationship that, but, but in the same respect, there's a, there's a, such a mutual trust and a mutual, like coming to the table at, as equals, which is really fascinating because I mean, she's, my parents age. And so there's that, you know, intergenerational side of it, but it never feels like that when we're together. And I feel like she is always celebrating me and respecting me in ways that I hope I am towards other people. And so it's a very general way of affecting my life. But I think that she instilled in me a lot of trust in my own self and my own choices to kind of push through and do what I've done. You know, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think a lot of ministers, if like they're the person that they nurtured for nine years, went to seminary and then was like, I don't want to be a minister. They'd be like, what the hell is wrong with you? You know, <laughs> but it's not, I mean, there's never that sense at all with her. She's just like, you're doing ministry. Like you're doing great work anyways. This is, this, this is, you know, you, I don't really, I have a really attention lately with religion anyways, but like, you know, she, she embodies, in my opinion, what Christianity should look like. Um, and also just humanity, right? Like, I mean, I don't know. And she's just dedicated to helping and to healing. And I just, I really appreciate it. And she also now they do, they're retired and they um, are Santa and Mrs. Claus. And it oh. is the greatest thing to witness because I told her husband, who again is one of my dear friends as well, that he was made to be Santa Claus. <laughs> and she was cool. made to be Mrs. Claus. So if you if you imagine what maybe Mrs. Claus would be like, like that's Laura, but also like she like really likes to have good cocktails and like is really <laughs> funny, sarcastic, right? So there's like it's not this like sugary sweet, you know, like she's real. So 
That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and I think that you definitely welcome people in that way. I mean, I would hope so. You know, I think it's weird to, you. I think it's weird to kind of like compliment someone else and like like try to attain who they are and then be like, and by the way, that's me. You know, like I just I feel like I can't, like I I have I have a hard time seeing that. But I think in some ways that maybe this maybe an internal voice is pushing me to do this podcast so that I can also I can have a little bit of that validation for myself. You know, that like that that is a part of me that is in this world. I don't know. I hope you I hope you feel validated because I think that that absolutely is part of who you are and um part of the way that others perceive you and I'm I hope you you see yourself that way too. Yeah. So see you just talk about yourself on this podcast. That's the whole point. That's why that's why 74 people signed up for it because they're just like I get to talk about myself. 74? Yeah. You have such a cool network. I do. I'm really lucky. But again, like I, you know, I meet people because I meet people and, you know, there's just this constant, just the, the net continues to widen. And so, you know, five years ago, I didn't know who you were, but now we know who each other is. And that's just really, it's really special and wonderful. So I thank you. I also want to thank your baby for being quiet and being, and being a cherub for this hour that we've been talking. So now yeah. you can go and be a mother. And, I will. Um, I will. He's here. He's here. He's been uh, down there with him. So we'll go. Go relieve him from being our excellent baby job this year. As not as a babysitter, but as a father. You're. No, absolutely. You. No, absolutely. But he's on baby duty alone. So. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm often on baby duty alone, and he's often on baby right. duty alone. So. Right. So I really thank you for um, sharing a bit of your story, and maybe we'll get to hear more someday. But um, I think that I think you gave a good taste of of your experience in Morocco and what Morocco is. I think, I think it's valuable. So I really thank you. Well, thanks, Julie. It's, it's Very welcome. a lot of fun. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? I know incredible, thoughtful people, and I thank you for listening. Come back soon for another episode of it's just you and me.